Episode 11, Mona Shaw, founder of Mona Shaw and Associates Global and host of the Global Investment Voice podcast. You're listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. Join host Matt Trash as he interviews the EB5 industry's courageous men and women, leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB5. And now, financial engineer, industry expert, and EB5 superhero, Matt Trush. Welcome to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB5. EB-5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the U.S. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessarily long processing times, program sunsets, and even twilight. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of U.S. immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time, more than ever, for the good guys and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines of making positive change, the courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real-life successes and failures. Billions of dollars in families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming Mona Shaw, founder of Mona Shaw and Associates Global and host of the Global Investment Voice podcast. Welcome to the EB5 Superheroes Podcast. How are you? (laughs) I'm very well, Matt. It's actually fun being on the other side of the recording. Mona, as you know, EB5 Superheroes are industry leaders like you, protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Mona, let me brag about you just a bit. Mona Shaw Esquire was born in the UK, graduated from the University of Northumbria in England, admitted as a solicitor of the Supreme Court of England and Wales, and later admitted to the New York Bar and the United States Federal Bar. While in England, Mona trained with various firms before her appointment as a Crown Prosecutor with the British Crown Prosecution Service. After moving to New York, she established Mona Shaw and Associates Global, MSA Global, one of EB-5's top immigration law firms. Mona is highly proficient and recognized as an industry leader in EB-5 law. Mona has attained many accolades and awards. She was voted top 25 EB-5 attorneys by EB-5 Investor Magazine seven years in a row, recognized as a top lawyer by Who's Who's International, and as a top attorney of North America. Mona also pioneered and hosts the first and longest podcast series spanning almost six years that focus on foreign direct investment and EB-5. She has been honored for her work by various groups and for -for not-for-profit organizations. Mona's extensive experience in EB-5 began in 2006. She was one of the four original founders of the first regional center of New York, and then she founded the second. Today, Mona Shawn Associates formulates structures and handles EB-5 project work for multiple projects, both direct and regional centers, troubleshoots problematic cases for attorneys and regional centers, as well as handling multiple 
multiple EB-5 investor petitions. Mona has been notorious for handling projects in unique and novel industries, facing challenges head on. Mona, you are truly an EB-5 superhero. (laughs) Tell us more about your UK background, what brought you across the pond in the US, and finally, how did you ultimately land up in the world of EB-5? Wow, that's that's quite quite an introduction. Thank you so much, Matt. I was one of those people who came across with the spouses. The UK was my home and and I was an established lawyer. I really did not want to come out to the US. And I I reluctantly came out because my ex-husband was a physician and he wanted to basically carry on more research, etc. over here. And unfortunately, uh, although our marriage sort of disintegrated, I ended up having to stay in the US because I had a young child and we had a little bit of a battle for custody. I won eventually. I'm saying eventually, it wasn't that easy. But unfortunately, I had to stay in the US at that time. I'm saying the word unfortunate because it seemed unfortunate at that time. Otherwise, I lost custody of my son, which is why I ended up establishing my own practice. And I have to say, it was very difficult because I wasn't used to doing anything small. And I certainly wasn't used to the way New York City or or the US was ran. But I have to just take my hat off to New York. It was just tremendous. Everything I did here, there was so much support in so many different ways. So yes, as a single mother, I started my practice and I fell into EB-5 because I ended up doing a lot of immigration post 9-11. It was post 9-11, there were all these things which happened in New York City with secondary inspection under the Bush administration. And one of my clients kept rabbiting on about a $500 green card. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I actually had, without realizing it, had also done uh, removal proceedings for somebody who was part of the old EB-5 process in the 90s. And then we realized that this really was the way forward. And that this, again, is just before your 2008-2009 crash. We, we decided, I, myself, and two other colleagues, to set up our own regional center in New York City. And there was nothing. There was no regional center. People hadn't even heard of it then. I think there were about 14 to 20 regional centers in the whole country at that time. You have such an interesting story. You came across from the UK to the States. As you mentioned, you had this custody challenge that kept you here in the States. And as we say, everything is divine providence, right? A time, maybe it seemed like it was not where you wanted to be. But on the other hand, you've become such a success in the EB-5 industry and such a pillar of the industry that we're all glad that you stayed. And also the way you, as we all say, we we fell into things. It sounds like you just fell into EB-5. Again, that's probably divine providence as well. That the first case found you and and you had actually, I think you referred to it as a $500. It was probably um, (laughs) $500,000. Yeah, right. He kept saying $500. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Only or $500. Think how many we would have uh, in greater so it sounds really exciting. You were already a very prominent lawyer, established lawyer in the UK and then in the States. And you started jumping into this EB-5 regional center program. How do you see it evolving over time since you were really there from the beginning? What were some of these important milestones along the way that, that shaped the way that EB-5 has developed and come to where we are today? Oh, tremendous amount of changes. Back in the day when we first put our regional center up, the first regional center in New York City was NYCRC. Morris was the head of the the IPO at that point. And there wasn't any established department in immigration. And I can tell you because we have copies of the very first petition that we filed. Even our PPMs were generic in those days. It was nothing like what we are today. What you see today has been a process of involvement over the years. But in a way, it's been very short-sighted, I would say, of USCIS and of the government. CBI was not something, CBI, when I say CBI, I mean citizenship by investment. It's also known as the the golden visas, any kind of visa which allow you permanent residency. In the world, there are CBI have some countries allow you direct investment to get a, a passport, but majority of countries, you get investment for 
residency, it wasn't really a big thing. There were just a handful of countries which which really allowed that. And it was something which progressed later as countries saw the amount of money which came through. But I'll tell you where the US really lost out was in the handover of Hong Kong back in 97. Because at that time, we did have the regional center program, we had the EB5 program, but a lot of people, a lot of investors came out of Hong Kong and just came to Canada because Canada had everything set up. They had the program ready and everything. And the US really missed out, I believe, on on a tremendous amount of investment capital, which could have come in and really helped. But at the end of the 90s, I don't think, you know, the US really cared. I think when it did actually happen, which was at the end of the first decade, was when we really needed it. You bring up so many interesting points. The fact that 1997, the Hong Kong residents could have chosen a warmer climate, whether it be Florida or (laughs) Texas or even Puerto Rico, that would qualify as an EB-5 residential project and even a place to settle down much closer to their own climate. Instead, they chose Vancouver, which is very nice, of course, but, you know, a lot of cold places in Canada, which weren't necessarily as similar to their home base. Now, if that's the case, Hong Kong slash Canada in 1997, what about Hong Kong residents considering the U.S. now? Don't you think that the U.S. would be the perfect place to jump to, given the turmoil that's happened in the last few years in Hong Kong? And have you seen an increase or a spike in number of Hong Kong cases coming to the States? We've had a lot of interest, but here's the issue. Quite a lot of people understand that the U.S., like Canada, takes a long time to be adjudicated. And many people do not have the patience or they don't have the understanding of how the the U.S. program really works. I feel that this whole program has been mishandled, for want of a better word, from the very outset. With a little bit of a vision, I think that we could have been in a very different situation. Anyone coming now from Hong Kong is unfortunately classed as a Chinese immigrant. Other than the fact that direct your visa status is current, unlike under the mainland Chinese program, it's almost a 15 to 16 year backlog because of a number of issues, namely that uh, they mishandled some of the visas coming into China over the years. So unfortunately, if anyone did come from Hong Kong right now, I don't think they would be too appreciative of these long backlogs. Interesting. So you brought up again so many interesting points, Mona. Let's (laughs) unwrap it as we can. So first you said that the Hong Kong Chinese currently would be treated as mainland Chinese. That happened under the Trump administration. We are are lobbying for it to be returned to what it used to be, but it hasn't happened yet. Second point that you brought out was that under the direct program, which is still well operational, Chinese do not have any retrogression. They're sort of at the same point in line as everybody else. So a Hong Kong slash Chinese resident could go into EB-5 Direct and make that next step to go through the EB-5 program, EB-5 Direct program. What were the reasons that you thought that that wouldn't be necessarily so attractive? And then I'll get to my third question. Well, as soon as the regional center program is reauthorized, then it will stop being current. So anyone who's coming in, they might want to take a chance, but it also might mean that they just get put back into the 15, 16 year backlog. The second issue is the fact that USCIS has now become notorious for being ridiculously slow. So even if you are in a project which looks perfect, it's direct, there's nothing else to be done. Could you be adjudicated before the reauthorization? It's unlikely. So that's Mm -hmm. what I would say put people off. Yeah, that is amazing. So to the second point you made about Hong Kong residents, they could come in as a Chinese resident and go smoothly through the process. But your point that you made, I think that's important for listeners to pay attention to something I hadn't really realized is the moment that the regional center program is reauthorized, then the Chinese direct investors would join the retrogressing or the 15, 16 year wait 
along with their comrades, no pun intended. Is that the case? Yes, unfortunately, that would happen. So that's why I'm very hesitant when we say, I mean, I am expecting there to be people who do try, certainly agents who will try to make some money because the EP5 program was a huge money spinner from, from China and from Asia in general. We have a lot of interest even still from countries like Korea and Vietnam. And of course, China was a big one. But today, that is not the case. But today, as we know, that most of the investors now come from India. Right. India, Vietnam, South Korea. You made a very good observation that those who are trying to sell the EB-5 direct program to Hong Kong and Chinese residents may be omitting the very important fact that once the regional center authorization is in hand, that they will go to the back of the line with the rest of their compatriots. The last question, my third question I wanted to ask you, follow up to your initial comments there, was a a point about vision. It's very important. Like you said, we missed out in, in attracting the Hong Kong residents to come back in 1997. The vision would be if we would recognize the great potential, 40 billion has already come to the States through the program, 276,000 jobs last time I checked were created. There's such an amazing potential for this program to do good for the U.S. economy. And yet we seem to be doing everything in a haphazard way. So where do you think the vision should be driven from? Is it a Congress vision? Is it USCIS vision? Is it an executive office vision? Where do you think that vision should come from? And and then following up with that, with the numbers that we have, 10,000 visas divided by three on average, does any of this in terms of visas actually turn the dial and $40 billion in terms of the amount of capital come to the U.S., is that really even having a significant impact when you think about the trillion dollars of GDP and budgets, et cetera, that the government is looking at? So who should be driving the vision? And does it really make an impact at the end of the day in terms of the way it's structured now to bring in significant capital to the U.S.? Okay, another loaded question from you, Matt. So here, here's the issue. It's not just any one driver. Over the years, I have lobbied with uh, several members of Congress, and it's, it's very interesting as to see how, what kind of response I've had. The vision that I've heard seen from some members of Congress have understood that EB-5 should really not be clubbed in with immigration programs. And that's, I think, has been its biggest problem because it's seen as immigration per se and not as an economic development program. It keeps getting pushed back. People don't want to know about it. The Democrats only want to know about it if if we are including DACA in it. The Republicans only want to know about it if it includes something to do with their district. So without seeing the, the whole wide picture, I think that is one of the biggest problems. I think we need to educate Congress far more. There's a lot of lobbying going on, but unfortunately, the lobbying is very specific. It's not really... I feel that Congress themselves, congressional people themselves, there's very few of them out there who really do understand where this is coming from. More than anything else, the type of immigrant that the EB-5 program has been bringing into the United States. They've been bringing in people who, if one person is spending 500000 that family might be spending $3 million to $5 million on average by the time they've, they've uh, bought properties or paid for education, set up business, the amount of money coming in is really, we don't have a figure on it because it's the influx of foreign domestic capital because of the EB-5 program is a much wider picture than just the EB-5 program itself. And that's why I've always advocated for it to be split and taken away from immigration itself. But that won't happen because it's an EB program and EB-5 being the fifth preference of the employment-based petitions will always be classed as immigration. 
what you're really describing is you think that it's Congress should have the vision, but they're not educated. They would only realize that this is such a powerhouse for the U.S. economy. The problem has been the elements within our own industry in between. There's been a lot of self-serving stuff. There are regional centers and programs out there who who want to change the program to what suits them. All of the infighting that we've had for the last five years has been there for a reason. What we're not talking about a small amount of money, Matt. We're talking about a huge amount of money. What makes our office or our law firm a little different from others is the fact that we don't just do law. We don't just work with source of funds investors. We don't just work with project documents. We don't just work with securities documents. We work with all of them. So we, we have an understanding of a business. We have an understanding of the security documents and project documents. We have an understanding of the investor. But what makes us different is the amount of travel that we do and the amount of marketing that we do as well. Because then we see how the world outside of the US looks in and sees the US. There's an arrogance which happens, which, hey, this is the US, of course you're going to like it. Well, actually, no, there are other countries out there that investors might want to go to. And there are other reasons why, you know, somebody might want to come into the US. And are we really attracting the biggest, the best and the brightest, which is what the program's highlights were. And I feel like that, that goal has not been achieved. Mona, I think you should be the one who creates the vision for the industry, because I think there's really a lack of leadership there. There doesn't seem to be, I guess, a level of leadership to really drive the way the program should go. If you look at the whole spectrum, you have investors who will blame the regional centers. The regional centers will blame Congress. The Congress will blame USCIS. Congress is, is just not getting around to it. So everybody's blaming them. You know, where is the solution, Mona? Where do you think that we can really make a change for good so that the US economy, which is a market economy where competition rules, will act as a, a market attracting program for the best and the brightest investors and immigrants throughout the world? Well, I do think that it has to come from Congress. At the end of the day, we can have regulations which change. And the regulations, I do believe that the investment amount, the TEA, all of these matters will end up coming from the regulations. But it has to be Congress who actually have this sight for what the EB-5 program is and how we can take it to the next level. The reason I brought up the whole point relating to Canada was because at that point, people did not have the vision to see what was coming in, even though we had the example in front of us as to what was going on in Canada and the amount of foreign direct investment which was coming in. And since then, now CBI right now is a huge platform all over the world. You have all kinds of countries who are making the most of this program. From Europe, for example, you have Spain, you have Portugal, you have even the United Kingdom, even though that's at 2 million. You have Australia, you have Canada, you have all the Caribbean, you have Turkey, you have smaller countries where, you know, like Malta, countries where they have actually recognized the advantages of CBI and taken out what the advantages should be and brought in, for example, foreign investors, not only who could come in and just pay taxes, but who could make a difference to the country? Who could be bringing in infrastructure, businesses, entrepreneurs? That's what the EB-5 program is all about, bringing in entrepreneurs and making a difference, creating jobs and making a platform for others to come in and work because there's not that many of that kind of category in the world. What I'm hearing, Mona, is that your platform is that the EB-5 program, which is an immigration program, should be now become really a CBI program. That it is. It's, a glo- it's called a golden visa program. Yes, but really yes. that's the way it should be viewed and should be viewed for attracting the best 
entrepreneurs, attracting capital, creating jobs. It is something in order to encourage residency, but it's not necessarily that that is going to be lumped in with all the other immigration issues that are challenging Congress at the moment. That's correct. Mona, how would that look? If we were to change that and pull EB-5 out and just call it the, the CBI Investment Immigration Program, how would that look a little bit different? And what do you think would be the benefits and the ways to market that internationally to compete with the rest of the world? Donald Trump was not a good person for immigration. It was dreadful. During the Trump years, I think I had been the worst possible in every category for immigration. However, he did have the right vision when it came to some of these programs. There was a lot of talk out there of extracting programs like EP5 and putting them into a different category altogether, doing what's called smart immigration. And I feel like that is the way, you know, one should really move forward. We should have a smart immigration type of policy because when everything is clubbed together, you know, EP5 is a very small dynamic in comparison to say perhaps some of the other areas like asylum and the other areas where where you really hear all of the, the, the press go after. And unfortunately, the press like bad stories. So even if they're discussing EB-5, they're not going to talk about the qualities of the EB-5 program. They're going to talk about the few cases of fraud or how, you know, the integrity measures need to come in for because what people do, how we're bringing in bad Russians and bad Germans and bad whatever because of the EB-5 program. And without really looking at all the benefits and all of the good people that we're bringing in. What I hear you saying is that smart immigration is the way to move forward. And what would be very beneficial for the program, at least, would be to segment it from the rest. Am I correct? There are 10,000 EB-5 visas approximately, but there are about a million other immigrants that come to the country every year through the other immigration programs? I think that's correct. But the 10,000 visas is not 10,000 visas, as you know. It's actually really only 3,000 visas because it includes all of the dependents, which it shouldn't. And even if we did, if we eradicated that and had actually 10,000 visas, that would be tremendous within itself. But the very fact that we only have 3,000, that is another what you would call a challenge to the program. Even if there were 10,000 out of a million, it's already a small sliver. Yes. Second, it's already slivered into a third, one in three. So we're down to 3,000 visas per year. So this is a tiny, tiny, tiny drop in the immigration program. It's almost, as you said, not even appropriate to call it an immigration program because of the, I guess, minuscule uh, numbers relative to the rest of the, the larger landscape, let's say. So to pull this out and to make this a new program is something which is quite doable. In fact, it has a whole set of different parameters and requirements and et, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like there would be a great benefit to bringing this out and calling it the smart visa instead of the EB-5 visa. What do you think? Certainly, but you forget that one of the biggest parts of EB-5 are the projects. So what what happens is that when you do go overseas and and investors ask you, can you give me government projects? Because they don't seem to understand or they don't comprehend that this is not a government program, that this is a private program. And these are all private projects. But these projects that we work with, they're all over the country. They're in all kinds of of industries. And it's that which I think should be allowed to expand. Because what happened in between, the real estate uh, industry took over EB-5. All the regional centers decided that they were just going to go after real estate. And other industries got squashed. And then it wasn't helped by the fact that USCIS did not understand how other industries work. USCIS do need to have a lot of training on even how on their direct program. They need to be able to come out of a mama papa type of, of sort of mind, mindset and move into a more corporate mindset. They really need to come up to 2022, which is what we're not seeing. So it's, it's not one element alone, Matt. There are a number of different elements here at play. So as you brought up EB-5 Direct versus the Regional Center Program, tell us a little bit about EB-5 Direct, what are the merits and challenges, and then let us know your thoughts about the 
future and the fate of the EB-5 Regional Centre Programme? Well, EB-5 Direct is quite misunderstood. We, we did a lot of EB-5 Direct alongside regional centres, mainly because a particular project might suit a direct programme better than the regional centre. Between the two, you are limited with EB-5 Direct with the amount of people that investors that you can bring in because it's directly correlated with the amount of jobs. So without counting induced and indirect jobs, you are limited. Secondly, and this is where I will really blame USCIS. The way USCIS and I suppose Congress and the regulations, you have to have a direct nexus between where the investor sits and where the jobs are created. So often the corporate structure does not work for a lot of industries and we have to use these convoluted kind of methodologies which sometimes USCIS understands, sometimes they don't, in order to create that nexus. So direct can be very, very tricky. But direct is also very straightforward. I do believe in the EB-5 program. I just believe that it should be for all industries. It shouldn't be just, you know, hijacked in one industry. And what we would really love to see is USCIS modernize direct as well, so that one could play in both fields. You know, you could have your foot in both camps. As far as what my best guess is going to happen, uh, I do see the reauthorization of the regional center program. I don't see it coming in a rush. I do see it maybe coming in March, more likely coming in June. But definitely, I do see it coming the first half of this year. I do see it perhaps coming in uh, along side integrity measures, but not necessarily the investment amount. I do believe that that's going to be left to the realm of USCIS. They're going to redo their regulations and their regulations, whether they come up with an investment amount of 750 or whether it's back to 900, nobody knows. But what we do know for sure is that it won't be 500,000. It will definitely be above. I think that the corporate structure of the direct program is what limits you. And that's problematic in, on so many fronts. So let me give you an example. Put up a medical dialysis, for example, where we have doctors who own it, perhaps, and they're all licensed. In order to be part of the same entity, you would have to be licensed. If you can't be licensed, you can't be part of that entity. So you would have to have a separate entity. Now, the original entity where the doctors are, where the jobs are created, as you're part of the second entity, you don't have the direct nexus. So now you have to create a pathway from your entity to be able to create the direct jobs. In a regional center context, all of the projects, because we have two entities, an NCE and a JCE, all projects are indirect. But in the direct context, we can't do that. We have the same NCE has to be a JCE. More direct projects have been denied on corporate structure than anything else. And it's usually because that there isn't a direct nexus. The jobs have been created, but you just can't count them. So I feel that USCIS needs to modernize that because in today's day and age, there's so many differences. When this program was first put out in the 1980s, you know, we weren't even using the internet. So they do need to modernize it. So let's go back, call it the 1980s or 1990s. 1990s, to, I'm sorry, yes, if, not 80s. If we were to hit the reset <laughs> button to start all over, what do you think would be the right way to set it up so that initially it would have the, the right strength to grow and flourish the way it, it really could? Well, EB-5 was originally brought under IMAC 1990, and that was fine for the 90s. But when it went through a change towards the end of the 90s, early 2000s, I feel at this point, what I would like to see is I would like to see a separate department set up which handles EB-5, and it handles EB-5 using today's world. For example, cryptocurrency isn't even recognized by USCIS. And even if you use cryptocurrency and you manage to make a, a profit and you sell that and the profits that you sell, you use for EB-5, you can guarantee you're going to have an RFE because USCIS just isn't there. It doesn't, doesn't understand some of the technology aspects of certain projects. So it's because USCIS are not 
trained for that, nor do they have the manpower for that. That's why I'd like to see a separate department, which could perhaps handle the project side. Perhaps the immigration side could still be retained by USAS, but the project side should definitely be bifurcated. Who would handle it? I would suggest a separate department, maybe in commerce. Amazing. Incredible. Given the fact that you've got tens of billions of dollars and hundreds, if not thousands of investors who are now in limbo, how do you explain this to your clients that Congress just hasn't been able to reapprove this program, which is holding billions of their dollars? What do you do to manage expectations, but also keep your clients informed along the way? Apologize and apologize and apologize. (laughs) I spend at least one third of my day every day writing to investors and writing to people who are asking what's going on. We try to keep people informed. You know, we have a podcast series. We try to keep everybody informed through that, through our blog. But there's limited to what you can say other than just saying that, look, we've chatted with this Congress guy. He has sympathy. Your petition is good. But I'm sorry, you just have to wait. It's very difficult, especially when people have put their life savings into the projects and it's taken three, four, five years before anything is happening. It's it's definitely not what the program was designed to do. But then also remember, Matt, back in the day when I first started, it would take two months to get an approval, not three years. So it sounds like success has also brought its own challenges. Yeah, problem has been with EB-5 is that it's been a victim of its own success. And USAS has not manned up or has not geared up for the amount of people and the amount of of, uh, attention that this program has attained. Right. Well, the US was able to attract wonderful talent like you, Mona. We (laughs) we expect that the EB-5 program, along with E1s, bring in the best and the brightest. Isn't this something that is really shooting ourselves in the foot? Yeah, I totally agree it is. I feel like this is just a wasted opportunity. Well, how do we turn the lemons into lemonade? What do you think is the way that we can turn things around given the situation today? Lemons into lemonade. (laughs) That's a very good analogy. The situation here is, does everybody want lemonade? Don't we want to turn lemons into champagne? I think I would rather look at it at that that viewpoint. I think I am still hopeful that we will get leadership who will be able to go out there and get the team out in Congress and be able to find a solution. It may not be this year. It may not be next year, but we will get there. Mona, you and your team of EB-5 superheroes are really leading the path and turning things around. So tell me a little bit more about where we can find you, where we can listen to your podcast, and a little bit more about your team of EB-5 superheroes who are helping you lead the way. I've been blessed by my team, Matt. Nobody gets anywhere without help, and it's never a single person. It's always a team. And my team are just wonderful. They work around the clock. They answer emails at all times because, of course, we deal with people at all time zones. You can find us on our website, www.mshawlaw.com. Our podcasts are on all these same avenues from Google to iTunes. Monet, <laughs> you are so sharp and so creative and really thoughtful and you have a vision for EB-5 which is rare and so I want to encourage you to continue to be out there shaping EB-5 for good. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you and I wish you the best of success and onward and upward. Thank you very much and it was a pleasure to be a guest on your series. That's a wrap. Mona Shaw and other EB-5 superheroes like her are the industry's best and brightest who are flying onward and upward to bring out the best in EB-5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB-5 superhero. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the EB-5 Superheroes podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. To access today's show notes, ask Matt a question, or suggest an EB-5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit eb5superheroes.com.